is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 172 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Anna Bartolucci all about sleep, creativity, and procrastination. But first, to last week's question, which had a whopping response. I'm delighted. Uh, so I, I am not going to be able to read everybody's comments, but we had the question was, what are your goals for 2023? And we had comments from Ian, Eden, Torna, HB, Dharma, uh, and a couple of others as well. So thank you so much to everybody. HB Line says, my goals for 2023 are to continue developing my strengths, love it, everybody drink, uh, and to launch my coaching business and write and publish my next nonfiction book. I'll add other goals as I move through the year. And Torna said, uh, I have a handful of goals, finish the first draft of the mystery I am working on, but I have a full list of books that I want to publish this 2023. One poetry to make writers get moving, if only laugh. Two are comb combinations of poetry and prose and history that includes illustrations that I've done. Um, and yes, so everybody else gave lots and lots of uh, different goals and I love that. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. So along the same vein then, this week's question is, what's your 2023 reading goal? So last year I ended up reading, I think it was 106 books. That was what I ended up on, uh, at, which was lower than the year before, which was 120 books. So we all know my competition's not very happy with that. But of course, it's completely unsustainable to read more every year, year after year. Otherwise, at some point, I'm going to be reading 700 books in a year and doing nothing other than like eat, sleep, shit and read. And uh, that's not going to be my life. So um, yes, I think I have set my goal at 100 again this year. Uh, so as long as I beat that, that's fine. I obviously <laughs> not the secret goal is that I want to read more than 120, but I'm not saying that out loud. Oops, I said it out loud. But no, 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 the official goal is 100. That's what you can hold me to account for. <laughs> and apologies in advance, I'm, I'm quite husky. I've been uh, poorly this last week. And uh, so I've got this filthy <laughs> laugh and uh, well, I have a filthy laugh anyway. But yeah, I'm, I'm sounding a bit croaky. So apologies on the uh, audio this week. Okie dokie, the book recommendation this week is Neon Gods by Katie Robert. This is a saucy, very spicy uh, retelling of Hades and Persephone. It is also one of the books that we are looking at for the masterclass this month. This month, well, the, the masterclass is on the 1st of March if you are a rebel patron uh, and at the $15 tier, I think it is. And so we're doing Neon Gods and uh, Scarlet uh, St. Clair's A Touch of Darkness, I think it is. And we are looking at retellings and uh, sexual tension. So if you would like to learn more about either of those, then you can by uh, joining the Patreon. The reason that I am recommending the book is because one, I absolutely bloody loved it. Uh, and two, it what Katie does, other than uh, sexual tension very, very well, is has very clear and explicit consent in her books. And I love that. I love books that have uh, very clear consent, but it's not like, you know, uh, <laughs> you stop the book to uh, request consent or whatever. It's done in the mood and atmosphere of the scene. I just thought it was really uh, elegantly done. Very, very well done. I love Hades and Persephone stories. Um, I love retellings. So uh, yeah, and I love her world in particular. I've now read all three of the books in this series. I literally read them back to back. I never do that ever, literally never, ever. I never read book one and then go on to book two. And I know that's sacrilege to say that because so many people like to binge read. I do not. I do like to binge read, but books from different series. So like I'll read really intensely for a week or whatever, but not usually books one after the other in a series. It's very, very rare that I will do that. 
And I did that with this series. So that tells you something. Look, it's not going to be for everyone. There, It is kind of skirts the line of erotica. It might even be classed as erotica. I'm not sure if it's erotica. It feels like it's definitely very spicy. I don't know if it's erotica. I'd have to have a look at the categories on Amazon. Either way, please do check the trigger warnings and the content warnings. You can do that by visiting Katie's website and then scrolling to the books um, and then uh, checking because uh, Katie has very clear content and, ta- uh, and uh, uh, trigger warnings. So please do that if you go and read it. However, I fucking loved it. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun read. I recommend it. Okay, on to my personal update. As I mentioned, I have been ill. So it is Thursday the 5th of January. And I have been ill, I would say, since the 30th of December. I went to bed at 6pm on New Year's Eve. I did not see midnight. Well, I did because the fucking fireworks woke me up at midnight, shot up in bed thinking somebody was firing a shotgun around us, around the house. But uh, no, I I didn't see <laughs> didn't see New Year's Eve, which I was very disappointed about because I absolutely love New Year's Eve. Anyway, it's still New Year. I'm still lapping up the buzz and the energy of a fresh start. My activator, everyone drink, fucking loves a fresh start. Uh, so I have always, always loved the New Year. It, it's not really the... I don't really count my working year as New Year. I do use it as a fresh start just because... like, But like I use the energy of the New Year as a fresh start. But my, I sort of class my year as a, uh, Mar- uh, April to the end of March. Yeah, the tax year. Because that's what my business does so and I always do my end of the year roundups as well I've already started thinking about it this year because this year was a hell of a fucking year and it's not even over anywho so yes I was ill I'm more or less uh well no I think you can probably hear in my voice I'm not quite back to normal uh but I am decidedly better than I was so in the last week, then, I have been manically trying to do everything for um, the launch of a, a game of Hearts and Heist. I am ridiculously excited because ARC copies have gone out and I'm starting to get feedback and everybody's loving it. And I'm like, so excited. Oh, God. Like, oh, I really, I, I wonder if I will ever stop being excited every single time I open my mouth about this book. Uh, but like, I'm just so fucking grateful to everybody who's taken the time to read a, an advanced copy who is helping with the street team and the launch and like who is being lovely obviously like not everything is five star reviews there are are other reviews on there and that's completely fine and that's the point of having arc teams right is so that you get honest feedback but like I'm just fucking delighted by everything and so yeah I'm really excited I'm trying to throw a little bit more money at this launch um I've just signed off the hardback. I'm just waiting for the proof copy. And then I've got to upload. Um, There were some typos, obviously, that come up in uh, ARC copies. So I've got to uh, update the files. And then they're ready. And I'm going to be able to order some copies uh, to send out to particular influencers and stuff. I can't do loads because obviously it's bloody costly. But I'm going to do a few. Anyway, and so I this week have been writing the reader magnets so that I have got a novella for people to uh, get for free if they join my mailing list and also a warm reader magnet for the end of the book. So that one's done. And then the reader, the cold reader magnet uh, is I've got one chapter left. And then I've got to write book two this month. So I'm trying to write up approximately 100,000 words this month. I did uh, a couple of days of five and a half thousand. And then Wednesday, I had to sit on my ass and do nothing because I was so poorly. Uh, that was, wait, was that only yesterday? <gasps> the, do you know what's annoying? Everyone was like, you should rest. And I was like, oh, I don't want to rest. What do I need to rest for? Anyway, I did as I was told, like a good girl, not like a rebel. And I did rest yesterday. Lo and fucking behold, by the evening, I felt decidedly better. Who knew? Who knew that rest was so fucking good for you? <laughs> oh, it's annoying, isn't it? I just, I just don't like resting. It just, it just doesn't jive well with me. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, so I feel very perky and back to my normal self this morning, which is brilliant because I've got a lot of fucking shit to do. Uh, so where am I? A few more things to tell you. The audiobook is winging its way through the ACX channels. We did have a few sticky issues with Find Away, uh, so I think that is that should be sorted this week. And I'm hoping that that will be live probably by the time I don't know if not by the time this airs, then by the time 
the next one airs for sure. So I will tell you all about that uh, soon. Secondly, for the first time ever, I am discounting both Heroes, 10, ste uh, 10 Steps to Hero, How to Craft kick a Kick-Ass Protagonist, and 13 Steps to Evil, How to Craft Super Bad Villains for the whole of January. Uh, they are both going to be $1.99. This is the digital books, not the paperbacks. So the ebooks are $1.99 for the whole of January. So please, if you don't have a copy yet, go treat yourself for January. Go up your game on the craft. There's stacks of tips and tricks and tangible examples to help you improve your characters. So if you've been on the fence about reading them, now's the time, baby. Go get yourself a copy. Treat yourself, honey. Um, you won't regret it. So yes, that is, I think, most of my updates. If you would like to follow along with my challenge uh, of writing 100k this month, then you can. I am mostly posting about it on Instagram. You can find me at Sasha Black Author. And to explain, the 100k is basically the novella, prequel novella uh, reader magnet, which will probably end up about 15,000, maybe just over 15,000 words, and then the full book two. So that's where I sort of came to that number. I, I may not end up writing quite 100k this month, but basically the point is write the second book, get the novella done. Uh, so yeah, come and cheer with me, for me, laugh at my misery of trying to smash out this many words, whatever you want to do, let's chat on uh, Instagram. Okay, so uh, let's move on. The Rebel of the Week this week is Sam Ross. Sam says, my story begins with my work. I was at a manufacturing company working a frankly pretty shitty job, but it was a re uh, rebuilding moment in my life and there was a global pandemic at the time, so it's what I had. I worked hard, did well, played the game, and after almost a year got a promotion to a considerably less shit job in the same company. Things were going well until about six months later when my boss unceremoniously called me in one day and informed me that my performance was unacceptable and so they were going to immediately transfer me back to the older shitty position I had escaped. I was shocked not just from the abruptness from the, but from the inaccurateness of it. My performance was great. We got weekly metric reports and I was consistently one of, if not the best in my department. What became clear over the next couple of days was that the demotion had nothing to do with my performance. But because another employee who was working the shitty job was having a breakdown due to the awfulness of the work, but she had seniority over me, so they created an excuse to bump me as the newest member of the second team. But they didn't want to fire me because I was very good at my job and they couldn't afford to lose anyone, not me and not the other employee. So in their minds, this was the best solution. I disagreed. I disagree too. Thankfully, we were partially, rem uh, partially remote due to the pandemic, so diving headfirst into interviews and job searching was possible. In the meantime, I made sure to collect all the evidence around my unceremonious demotion, including work reports, performance evaluations, emails, etc., it was a thick file. And when I found new work and gave my two weeks notice where the boss who, who demoted me literally asked if there was, oh my God, if there was any amount of money I could give you to stay and then hid for a day when I said no, uh, that file was ready and waiting with full explanatory statements to the HR representative in concluding my exit interview. I almost felt bad for the HR rep. He read through the file, getting visibly sadder and sadder with each page and apologised profusely. I don't know what happened to the boss after I left and I don't really care. It's all on record in the company's files and on them to figure out the shit show I left behind. I love this. How dare they treat you like that? Um, that just... Ugh, it's just bananas that they could swap one, one person out into a role like it's the clearly it was the role that was the problem and the work and also the fucking management of the role like how, oh god I just don't I just don't understand people I just don't un this is why I studied psychology guys like because I don't understand people like I don't understand how they could think that this was like acceptable also good for fucking you for like digging in and finding a different job that will like treat you with the respect that you need. Uh, like, good for you. Um, and thank you for sharing that rebellion. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, and please, my darlings, please be a rebel of the week because we are always low on stories, um, this week included, uh, you can email your story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. 
Remember, they can be any kind of rebellion. It doesn't even have to be your rebellion. It can be a family member, a friend's. It could be a cousin, a sister, a brother, a sister from another mister. It could be anything, any anybody's rebellion. But please do send them in to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, huge thank you to my existing patrons and my and returning and new patrons, Dharma Kelleher, Laura Annis, Tamara Nikolai, and Jennifer Conti. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means everything to me. I really appreciate it. And uh, don't forget to make the most of all of the benefits that you get by being a patron too. All of those should come to you through uh, Patreon DMs. And if they don't, please do message me and we can make sure they get sorted out. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, and next week it's movie night, guys, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, that's it from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Anna Bartolucci. PhD, DBSM, is a licensed psychologist and certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist. She has published two nonfiction books, most recently, uh, Better Sleep for the Overachiever, and has done talks and workshops for corporations, professional organizations, and at sci-fi, fantasy, and steampunk conventions. She has a not-so-secret other life as USA Today best-selling steampunk and urban fantasy author Cecilia Dominic. In 2022, she combined her loves of writing and psychology in her new venture, Psych Up Academy, and she enjoys coaching and designing online courses to help high achievers work with their brains to achieve their dreams. Hello and welcome. Hi, I am so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be here. Like one, because you have an absolutely fascinating career and background. And two, oh, because because like what a fascinating topic. And also, as listeners probably know, my wife um, has chronic fatigue syndrome, so doesn't always sleep very well. And so I'm like super fascinated to dive into this topic because like I don't. I don't know a lot about the science of sleep and like having a psychology background myself. I'm like really excited to nerd out with you. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Okay. So before we uh, dive into like the detail of sleep and overachieving and also procrastination, um, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about your incredible career and how you got to where you are today? Also for listeners, we have like 75 cats in our offices. (laughs) So there's probably going to be like cat chaos during this podcast. (laughs) Yes. I always love being able to end a session and then tell my husband there were more cats than people in that session. And it was amazing. I love it, thank of you. course, yeah. Well, thank you for uh, yes for reading my lovely and complicated bio. Yes, I'm a clinical psychologist. I got my PhD at the University of Georgia, and I think when this airs, they might have already been through the American football playoffs, the college playoffs, and hopefully we'll have gotten another national championship. We will see. Mm. And yes, and then I decided that I was tired of making graduate student money and went straight into a position at a sleep disorder center. And so I did general sleep medicine for a few years, and then I got tired of, well, I'll tell you about that in my rebel moment later. But uh, let's just say that there was a little impetus for me to strike out on my own. So I've had my practice since 2008, have focused primarily on insomnia, other behavioral sleep medicine problems. As for the other side, I write urban fantasy and steampunk, as you mentioned, and I have been writing stories ever since I was a kid. And the life inside of my head has always been more interesting than the life outside of it. And it's interesting because people will ask me, well, I bet being a psychologist really helps you in your author career. And I tell them, and it goes the other way too, because being an author makes me a better therapist because I'm basically dealing with goal motivation and conflict all freaking day. 
Mm -hmm. There is a strange like connection between the number of psychologists who or or, like people who've done a lot of study of psychology who then go on to write books that and lawyers like there are so Mm -hmm. many lawyers who write books and so many psychologists who write fiction it's unbelievable there must just be something like about the type of people that go into those careers who end up like writing fiction but like insomnia is so when I was a teenager I had a, a like kind of a few years of like, and I've always been a night owl, but insomnia has always fascinated me because I could just not sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and like, and also I like the night. So I find it very difficult because like, if I were to exist in my ideal world, it doesn't align with society's hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I find that a real problem. Whereas like my wife and son are super morning people. And so <laughs> like they function really, really well. Um, but yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, anyway, anyway. So today we're going to talk about uh, a couple of different topics. The first one is sleep and the other one is procrastination. But I did want to start mm-hmm. with sleep first. So like what are the most common myths or bugbears that you would like to bust about sleep and or maybe insomnia? Uh, great question. I'm going to give you one that is advice that we hear that is just plain wrong. And I'm going to give you a couple of unrealistic expectations that people have. The advice, yes, the advice we hear is to go to bed at the same time every night. And I'm sure you've heard that. Yes. However, it's not quite correct. It's more important to maintain a regular wake up time, which everybody says, oh, no, it's so hard to wake up at the same time every single day, especially on weekends or vacations. But that's where our internal clock anchors. It's when we wake up. And if you maintain a regular wake up time, then you will end up naturally having a regular bedtime, but you cannot force yourself to go to sleep if you're not sleepy. And so people will hear that they have to have a regular bedtime. Oh, I want to get eight hours. So I'm going to go to bed at you know, nine or 10 o'clock, wake up at six, and that will give me plenty of time to go to sleep. However, then they end up lying in bed awake, which then feeds the underlying insomnia process, which is that the association between bed and sleep is broken. So so this I find fascinating because I'm completely the other way around. Like I'm Mm -hmm. happy to get into bed because I know I will do the same thing before I go to sleep every single night. Like I make Mm -hmm. sure all my notifications are clear and then I read like Mm-hmm. for as long as is needed for me to feel tired because then like I it's like a, a switch in my brain I'm like oh it's bedtime now and then like I'm out in seconds and it really annoys my wife because <laughs> like when I'm ready to sleep like that's it I'm going to sleep immediately and within about three seconds I'm fast asleep the other way around <laughs> The morning mm-hmm. thing I find excruciating. It's funny because I was just like on, I was voice memoing a friend earlier today and I was like, I really need to just like get out of bed immediately and go and make coffee before the school run because like I can't cope with life until I've had a coffee. But like, I find it so hard to just get out of bed. Like, and so, yeah, I don't know. Like, is it poor sleep? Is it, what is it that like on the other end of the spectrum or do you focus more on the going to sleep side? No, it is interesting with the mornings. There is something called sleep inertia or sleep drunkenness where yes, people wake up and, but the sleep sort of hangs on a little bit longer Yeah, and it is, it can make people lay in bed for way too long trying to wake up. So Yes, yeah, so you're on the right track, which is go ahead, get up, start your day. Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> I have to admit, I'm not, a, I have never been a bounce out of bed first thing in the morning person either. And so I tell my patients, as long as you're up within 20 minutes, you're probably fine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like I'm so, I don't know, groggy. And, uh, but my, but my wife and kid, like my kid especially, just bounds out of bed. And it's like talking at me at like 5,000 miles per hour. And I'm just like, <laughs> I just, I don't even know my own name right now. Like, give me a second. <laughs> oh dear. Um, okay. So I uh, did we cover both of the myths? I think we only covered one, didn't we? That was just one. Yes. Uh, myth number two is I hear a lot from people that they don't believe that screens affect them in the middle of the night because we hear that we need to turn off our screens an hour before going to sleep. Yes. And that people say, well, I don't have trouble falling asleep 
My trouble is with waking up in the middle of the night, so screens don't have anything to do with that. That is completely incorrect. Screens can come back to bite you later on the night because as you were talking about, yes, you have high sleep drive at the beginning of the night, so you fall asleep quickly, but then as you sleep, the sleep drive goes down, which means the other issues emerge. So does using screens before, is using screens before bed a problem then? Yes. Okay. Okay. So how long before we sleep should you put the screens down? And does this include a Kindle? Ideally an hour. And it depends on if your Kindle is backlit. Like I have a Kindle Oasis, which you can turn the backlighting completely off. Okay. And that's fine. Okay. But any backlight on the Kindle, even if it's super low, is a problem? It can be. Some people are more sensitive to it than others. So I would say play with it and see. Okay. Okay. That is interesting. Um, You do hear that about the screens being a problem before bed, but I I was never sure if a Kindle would also be like an issue because you can lower uh, the the Mm -hmm. light and stuff. Um, Okay. So when it comes to circadian rhythms, like I did kind of allude to the fact that I'm a night owl at the beginning (laughs) of this, but is there really such a thing? Like do night owls and early birds actually exist? And like, if we feel like we're one or the other, like, should we lean into those? Like, should we embrace the fact that we're this way or should we, like, in order to have healthier sleep, does it help to to lean into that? Or is it just about actually setting any kind of routine? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this because this is one of my big soapboxes for sleep, which is that people should be allowed to live and work according to their body's internal schedule, not this stupid, you know, go to bed at 10 o'clock and wake up at six o'clock that all of the morning people think that we should do. Because Mm -hmm. like you, I am slightly delayed. And which is one reason why I work for myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that 8.30 start was just not going to be a a good thing for me. Yes, there are definitely circadian rhythms. And there's a little bit more nuance to it than people are either morning people or night people. Michael Bruce, who is a friend and mentor in sleep, has written a great book called The Power of When, talking about four different types of circadian rhythms. And most of us fall into the bear type, which is somewhere in the middle. Okay. Can you, are you able to tell me a little bit more? Like what is, like what hours does a bear, like where would that put them? I believe that it's been a while since I've read the book, but I believe the bear hours fall at going to bed at 11-ish and waking up at 7. So slightly later than, but however, there's the... Wow, 11 is late? Like, is that, that's late? Or, okay. Or is, I know for me, that's normal. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm like, if I go to sleep before one, I'm like, I'm winning for the school run. So yes, so you are definitely on the the later side of things. I believe that would be the wolf in his book. I'm not entirely sure, but yes, yes. some people are are more night owls. My husband is like that as well. I typically go to bed before he does. So when I was at university and I had no responsibilities, I would study from 9 p.m. until 3 a.m. And then mm-hmm. I would go home and go to sleep. Like those were like when when there was no restriction and nobody telling me what to do, that's where I naturally fell. But then mm-hmm. now, obviously, because of society and stuff, I try to go to sleep between like 11.45 and 1. Like, but the problem, the pro- I would definitely go to sleep at 1 if it weren't for the fact I had to get up at like 20 past 7. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just too painful. I like, I need at least seven hours sleep. Um, and that's another question. Is is that a myth? Do we need a certain amount of sleep or? Uh, so we need different amounts of sleep on different nights. So not all of us is going to need eight hours. And the National Institute for Health recommends for adults seven to nine hours, but people can sleep safely an hour outside of that. It's a bell curve. So those are the tales. But yes, people try to go for that eight hour. And if they're not eight hour sleepers generally, then they end up stressing out more about their sleep, which then creates more problems. Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? We should just let ourselves be really. And then yes. like we'd have a lot healthier sleep. Um, okay, so what advice do you have for creatives who have uh, like me, an extremely busy mind um, and like whopping to-do lists, like how can they create better sleep routines? Because often I find like 
first thing in the morning, last thing at night. I'm like, oh, like all of the things mm-hmm. I need to do or like all of the things I didn't get done, you know. Um, so, yeah, how can we create like easier, better, cleaner sleep or cleaner brains for ourselves? Yes, I think that's a really good question. I will admit that's something that I'm working on as well. And sorry, my cat is like all in my face right now. Okay. <laughs> he just wants to be loved. <laughs> yeah, he's like, just pay attention to me. Yeah. Like, I sleep fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So, one thing to remember is that our minds are like computers rather than light switches. So, remember back in like, the late 90s when personal computers were really hitting the the big market. It wasn't just the the computer people who were getting them. And we had to pick songs to play because it took so long for the darn things to shut down. That's how our brains end up working. So it's having that pre-bedtime routine and ideally mostly outside of the bed pre-bedtime routine so that you're not being awake in the bed. That's one reason we say to shut off the screens because I think we try to fool ourselves saying that these things that we carry around with us where we get work emails, we get all of the news, we get to hear about the latest crazy political stuff. And, you know, I'm in the US, you're in the UK, there's plenty of that to go around. And so we're fooling ourselves to think that, oh, we can just separate that part of those things when we go to bed. It's also that the blue light coming from our screens is similar to the wavelength of sunlight, which is our body's main signal for when it's time to be awake. So it's activating to the brain and also keeps the brain from producing its own melatonin, which is necessary both to fall asleep and to sleep during the night. So that's why we say turn off the screens. That's why I also say have a wind down routine that of things that is that are truly relaxing, not just the things that you feel like you should do during that time. And so I'll recommend to my patients, especially my neuroatypical patients, like the ones with ADHD and autism spectrum is okay have a few things that you find relaxing with that you can pick from because you might get bored with the same routine every single night so can you do you have any examples of the kinds of activities you're talking about because I'm guessing by screen you also mean just a tv or like on the wall as well Mm -hmm. yeah televisions used to have the exceptions because they had a different sort of light bulb in them but now everything is the lcd and similar so yes good distinction A lot of my younger patients like to do things like listen to podcasts and draw or color. Of course, reading is always a good thing. Like we always have our gigantic TBR piles that we need to get to. Yes. Is that what's behind you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I sort of always naturally choose to read, but, um, it's difficult if you don't, if you're not, you know, if you're not overly creative and Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know, it's quite hard. I'm trying to think of anything else that I do like from bed that isn't reading, but I think that's just what I've always done. Like it was kind of instilled from childhood to read before bed. And so Mm -hmm. like my whole life, that's what I've done. But if it's not instilled, then it's really hard to find those things because we're naturally, um, like socialized to just watch TV together in the evenings or whatever. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what about those oh, could people? I, yeah. Oh, sorry. So, could I say a couple of things? Yeah. Other things about it? Yeah. So a lot of times people will get really wound up about trying to find the perfect pre-bedtime routine. And my advice is keep it simple and make it something that you can do even when you travel. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. Yeah, that's very clever. And so do you think that we go to bed too early? And by that, I mean, we take ourselves to the bedroom too early because you sort of alluded to not going to bed until you really need to go to sleep. Yes, I end up having that conversation a lot with my patients and that they will put on their pajamas and go to bed like as soon as they finish dinner or you know, after a half hour of television and then they'll be in bed for hours. And the problem is that if you go to bed before you're sleepy, well, you're going to be laying awake in bed for hours, which is going to teach you to not sleep in the bed. Mm -hmm. And it's also potentially going to build up some anxiety because you're not naturally training yourself that, okay, bed is for sleep. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. You don't really think about the, the, what you're doing to your subconscious, but actually mm-hmm. that makes like a lot of sense. Um, okay. So what about those people who have chronic sleep issues and of, of, you know, I've already mentioned my wife has chronic fatigue syndrome and struggles to sleep. So any advice on when you have like a clinical condition like what can you do or any like comments about chronic fatigue in general and sleep the tricky thing about chronic fatigue syndrome is that people are tired but Uh they're not necessarily sleepy yes and there's a difference yes so what happens is with chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic pain like fibromyalgia would be an example as well yeah and they usually do come together so Yep. And I've also seen this with my patients who have narcolepsy or other disorders of hypersomnia. They actually are truly sleepy. But what tends to happen is when you have this sort of disorder, you end up being less active during the day. Of course you are. You feel like crap. However, that makes it harder for the body and the mind to differentiate daytime and nighttime. So when I treat these patients... Yeah. So I just finished up with somebody today, actually, who has chronic pain. And part of the treatment was okay, let's see how much activity you can get within your limitations. You know, obviously I don't want you hurting yourself, but let's see what you can do to train your body that daytime is daytime and nighttime is nighttime. Also, it's doing whatever you can to preserve your sleep quality. So that's the things we've been talking about, like with the screens, not going to bed until you are truly sleepy, trying to maintain a regular wake up time. And I also do a lot. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, yeah, that's the one I, cause my wife is a morning person. I think mm-hmm. she needs to actually go back to like getting up at six because that's what she used to do when I met her or, or even half past five. Mm-hmm. But now obviously because of the chronic fatigue, she will sleep until she absolutely has to get out of bed. But yeah, sorry, keep, keep going. That's, yeah. And it's, um, of course I can't say anything about your wife's specific case. No, but yes, if she can make her, you know, we want people to make their wake up times as steady as possible again for that internal clock, because every single cell in the body is attuned to it. And I also end up doing a lot of mindfulness and stress management for people to help them both with the internal struggles they have about their condition and also to keep the stress during the day from affecting them at night as much. Why do you think we all have different like natural sleep and wake times it's very odd given that we all live in the same 24-hour like society and and like is that something biological is it genetic like what how does do we know like scientifically why we have different rhythms there are some theories about why different age groups have different circadian rhythms like when your son hits the teenage years, he's going to probably be keeping you company at night. I can't wait for him <laughs> to like not want to get up at the butt crack of dawn. <laughs> yeah. And so the theory was that, you know, when we're all living in caves and we had to be alert and aware for large animals and other humans attacking us, the teenagers, would, the warriors would be awake at night. And then the older people would get up and start the fires early in the morning. And then the adults would be awake during the day doing the, you know, the other hunting, gathering, cooking. And so different people stick with these circadian rhythms. But generally what you see is that people shift later during the adolescent years and then gradually shift earlier as they get older, which is why we see the uh, older folks going for dinner at four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, I love this. I love this so much. Okay. (laughs) Um, Let's move on to procrastination. You have a new course. Um, So do you want to start by telling everyone a little bit about the course and what even prompted you to create a course about procrastination? It which grew out of the procrastination and perfectionism chapters in Better Sleep for the Overachiever. I found those two chapters to be really interesting and I wanted to do more research. Plus, you know, we all see those listicles online. Oh, these are five things you can do to address procrastination. But the problem is all of that advice is very general. And I wanted to dig deeper and see, okay, how can we make things more individualized? 
for people so they can discover why they personally are having struggles with the issues. Because one thing I have definitely found with working with my sleep patients is that if people understand why they're doing something and they understand that why something is important, they're more likely to change their behavior rather than if they're just given the flat out advice. You know, we've all heard we should get up at the same time every morning, but once you understand that it affects everything in your body to maintain a regular wake up time, people are more likely to do it because they can perceive an immediate benefit Mm -hmm. for it. Um, I also, you know, find it really consistent with my personal and professional mission statement of helping people to see themselves and others with more compassion. And that's a big theme that runs throughout the course. It's like, okay, this is what your brain does rather than beating yourself up over it. Let's figure out how to show yourself some compassion and work around it. And, uh, then I brought the psychology stuff into it by talking about mental shortcuts which since you have the psychology background, you might recognize as, you know, automatic thoughts and assumptions, but things that drive our procrastination behavior that can also be really helpful to uncover and challenge. So um, like, as you were talking, I was like the understanding the why is the way that I I think of it is the reframing, reframing the like either mental expectation or like the assumption, as you've just said. Yeah. It's about Mm -hmm. reframing that. Um, do you and I'm, I've got to ask because I ask everybody <laughs> do you know your Clifton strengths I do <laughs> <laughs> okay everybody take a drink yeah cheers, cheers. <laughs> oh gosh let me think what are they the first one is context the second one uh, it was which came as no surprise to anybody is achiever Ah. third is strategic then connectedness and then intellection I believe those are my top five. Ah, oh, I love it I love it I always like to know um okay so where can people find out about your course you can go to psychupacademy.com that will bring you to my teachable page excellent and that will be in the show notes as well just for excellent. Um, listeners okay so In your book, you talk about how perfectionism is a bargain, which I thought was fascinating. So could you explain what do you mean by that? And how can we actually overcome it? Yes. I've never talked about where this actually came from before. So you get to you get to know first. I was driving to meet a friend of mine for coffee. Uh, Her name is Shella Nicely, and she is a fairly well-known OCD therapist here in the Atlanta area. She also has a great memoir called Is Fred in the Refrigerator, Fred being her cat, and a memoir of her own OCD challenges and treatment. And I was also listening to an audiobook on life advice that you can get from studying improv which was a great book. And my brain meshed these things together. It must have been something in the book that, oh, well, perfectionism is the bargains that we make with ourselves that if we can only satisfy a certain set of, let's be realistic, impossible conditions, then we can be happy. And some of the perfectionistic bargains that I talk about, for example, are if I don't succeed at the very first try, then I'm a failure. So if I succeed at the very first try of doing something, then I am a success. Or if I can predict everything, then I can feel secure. And these are all ways that perfectionism bubbles up in the brain and causes us problems. So how to address it, like what you're saying, is awareness of it, reframing and challenging. And thinking about it, okay, well, no, if I'm not successful at something on the very first try, it's not a failure, it's an opportunity to learn. And so I talk in the course a lot about growth mindset and how moving into that can be super helpful with perfectionism. Yeah, I mean, everything you just said like cuts me so deep, but I'm pretty sure my soul now has a scar. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no, no, but it's it's just so true, isn't it? My cat's destroying my office. But anyway, just to, <laughs> for listeners, if you can hear stuff in the background, I can't mute whilst I'm talking. But um yeah, like, oh God. When I when I read that, I was just like, oh fuck. That is exactly like exactly what I do. Like I set up 
an insanely impossible expectation and then beat myself up for like not meeting it. Like my mm-hmm. Clifton Strikes coach is trying to beat that out of me, like with love, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, I've never heard it put so eloquently. And I was just like, it, it, I don't know, it just blew my mind. And like, even looking at perfectionism has been reframed just from like reading that one section. I was like, um, Yay. So yeah, I think, yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, you also mentioned uh, imposter syndrome and comparison. Um, now, we all know, I love a bit of comparison as someone who's highly competitive. <laughs> However, for the majority of people, it's not great. Um, and you talk about how uh, perfectionism is driven by those two things and what we can mm-hmm. do about it. So I just wondered... Um, if you could talk a little bit about imposter syndrome, because I think every single writer I have ever met has suffered mm-hmm. with it at some point in their life. So, yeah. Oh, I think every high achiever has suffered from it at some point in their Isn't life. Cool? Yeah, writers and others. Yes. Like those of us who want to like do the most, achieve the most, like, and sh- we strive constantly like to do, do, do in order to achieve. And yet we are the ones crippled by this, like horrific thing yes and part of it is because we're always comparing ourselves to the people who are on the next level Mm. you know once you think about it like you have a very successful podcast but are you looking around and seeing like joanna penn for example and other people who have been doing it for forever and comparing yourself and your audience size to them And that's the problem with being a high achiever is like eventually you get to the point where the only other people who you can compare yourself to are the people who are just blowing it out of the water. So yeah, comparison and imposter syndrome, they come out of that perfectionistic bargain of if I meet or exceed expectations, especially my own, I will feel secure because we always, we also have that, expression of the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And oh my God, if I fail, it's going to be so fucking embarrassing. You said I could cuss. I figured I would. You definitely can cuss. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So it's also, you know, driven by fears of not being good enough. And how do we tell if we're good enough? It's we're comparing ourselves to other people or to other people's expectations, or we're all told to set, set goals, but make them high, high goals. Yeah. Which, Yeah. And I think that's like the thing with creativity, like to actually measure creativity is impossible. And so we put these arbitrary metrics on ourselves, like, oh, uh, word count, because it's a thing that we can count or track or measure. Mm -hmm. But like, how do you measure quality? So like, I always think there's this really big debate over, you know, what is quality? Is quality in writing really good prose? um, Or is quality a book that somebody couldn't put down? Mm-hmm. Or is quality a book where you made somebody feel seen? Because they're all different things and you mm-hmm. can't necessarily always have all of those in the same book. So how do you actually measure quality? Like you can't, you literally can't. And it's not really yep. up to us anyway, as the authors to measure quality, it's up to the bloody readers. And yet we try to determine this and determine like the worth of our creativity when it doesn't fucking matter, <laughs> it doesn't, it actually right. doesn't matter. Just enjoy the process. Enjoy, like, did, are you proud of what you've created? Like, and, but then even then, like by even asking that question, you still have to put some kind of metric on it. Like what, mm-hmm. what will make you proud? So yeah, I don't know. It's very strange, like being, being a creative and then attaching worth to it as well. Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah, that makes it really hard. I will admit I have fallen into this trap so many times of when Me my too. books aren't selling well, mm-hmm. I feel less motivated to write because somehow that's telling me that my creativity and my writing aren't good enough. Whereas talk about things that are completely out of our control. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, oh boy, like the market is just, you can do everything right and still not hit, or you can do yeah. nothing right and spontaneously create a brand new genre that just like goes 
berserk and like that's why I suppose this this whole career well not even career we should stop saying career really we should say business but like the whole business of being an author is actually just about like it's a what's the word it's a numbers game like you need Mm -hmm. enough books to eventually beat the odds and the only way you will ever beat the odds is by having enough books and some people are lucky fuckers and beat the odds after three books or or two books or you know Mm -hmm. after their first series and some people aren't quite as in air quotes lucky and it takes you know uh 20 books like um um Elena Johnson, always, I love that she always talks about this and the fact that it was her ninth series before she had like a massive hit um, mm-hmm. series that became a racehorse. And I just think like, yeah, exactly. This is a long term game and it is about numbers and stop trying to make your first fucking book sell because like just, just yeah. write more books because that is the only way you're going to have a career. Um, but I'm going to get off my safe book box <laughs> before I upset everybody. Um, okay. What do you think are the biggest mistakes we should avoid when it comes to overwhelm and procrastination? Because like, I won't lie, I was definitely very overwhelmed today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> so yes, I saw that you zeroed in on the overwhelm part and I was wondering, like, oh, is she feeling rather overwhelmed and she's writing these questions? Yes. <laughs> Literally so live with overwhelm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially when you have so many things going on. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, okay, our brains are wired for drama, right? So that's why we write books, that way it's why we read stories, why we love them. And what happens is the brain will take that little kernel of truth in the situation and twist it and distort it and blow it up so you end up with a big emotional reaction rather than one that's more proportional to the situation. And our brains are especially good at doing this when we face tasks that are big or many because the brain is like, oh crap, new challenge, threat. So what happens is we get caught in the cycle of, oh no, I feel overwhelmed. I feel anxious. The anxiety leads to procrastination. And then the procrastination, of course, then leads to more to do, which then makes the pile of crap even bigger. And then our brains will then stick in these thoughts of, oh no, this is never going to change. I can't handle this, which then makes the cycle go even faster. And suddenly you're stuck in overwhelm, no idea where to start. And, oh, crap, how am I going to handle this? Mm. For me, it's definitely the many. Like, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, like, if I, like, what I dislike is when I have lots of really little tasks, because I'm just Mm -hmm. like, ah, like, I don't want to, I don't want to do the little tasks. I want to do the big meaty stuff that's like writing Mm -hmm. the book, creating the course or or whatever. But then like, you have to break the part of me needs to break it down in order to feel like I have like ticked off stuff. But then you Mm -hmm. definitely get to a point where like projects will proliferate so badly that there's like 75 million fucking post-its on my whiteboard. And then I'm just (laughs) like, what am I supposed to be doing um so yeah any tips or tricks for like getting over that yes and I have to laugh too because I'm definitely one of those as well I don't know if it's my own ADHD brain meshing with the achiever drive in a very bad way but yes I uh, I do definitely tend to overcommit go in too many directions at once like even to the point where I was complaining about something to my husband. He's like, you overcommitted again. And the sky is blue. And I'm like, thank you, sweetie. Yeah. (laughs) But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned breaking it down. So this is a good example of how my course is a little bit different from the advice we hear because, you know, we've all heard that old cliched piece of advice is like, how do you eat an elephant? Like one bite at a time, right? But the advice doesn't tell you where to start with freaking elephant. And so some people are going to need to just dive right in and jump in and do the task. Some people are going to need to back way up and make a plan. Other people are going to be somewhere in the middle. And one core thing to do is to build self-efficacy or the confidence in your ability to handle these things. Like you have probably been handling a million things on your to-do list for years now, but every time it feels new and scary rather than giving yourself credit, like, okay, no, I've been here before. I know what I can do. Yeah. That's, I didn't actually think about that, but like, yeah. 
since I left, well, even since before I left my day job, because when I had a day job, I was still running at the exact same speed as I'm running now. (laughs) Well, I do more now, obviously, like on my business. But even back then, you know, I was still trying to run at a thousand miles per hour, like on the writing business, because I wanted to leave my day job to do this. So yeah, like, I definitely don't think I have ever uh, appreciated that I do quite a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Damn. Um, okay. Anything else, any other kind of tips specifically for writers or like to, to look at overwhelm, procrastination, sleep, anything else that you would like to, uh, add? Yes. Thank you for, uh, thank you for asking that because I was thinking as we were talking, so I still kind of stuck back on the creative question and how do we manage to shut things off? And I think one of the big traps we tend to fall into, especially for those of us where we still have day jobs and we're doing this as our you know, our second career or side gig, is that it's really easy to just work, 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 work. And I found this out, especially during the pandemic, like given the absence of anything else to do, I will work, yes. which of course oh, is... God. I am <laughs> so bad for that. Like I literally yeah. said to my wife the other day, I... I don't know how not to work. Like, it's actually mm-hmm. a problem. Unless we've got something in the evening, I will just choose to work because I don't know what, like, I don't know how else to to function or like how, like, what does one do? Because here's the thing. I don't <laughs> want to sit in front of the TV, right? Mm-hmm. So what else do I have in the evening when we've got a kid and you've got to stay in your house? Either I read or I work. <laughs> like, there is mm-hmm. nothing else. So like, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, yeah. Yes, I agree with everything you're saying. It's horrible. <laughs> yes, and especially once this becomes a business, then yes, it is technically work and you do need to have a cutoff time yes. for it. Yes, And work regular hours. And I mean, I do want to say, I appreciate you interviewing me at this time because it was after my work day, but I imagine <laughs> it's what, like nine o'clock for you? It's half past nine. So um, yeah, that has also been, so I used to do podcasts like three to four nights a week. And I have got to the point where I literally physically, mentally, like emotionally, relationshiply uh, cannot keep doing that. (laughs) So I'm now cutting it back to Thursdays only. And so from Mm -hmm. January, I will only be doing podcasts on Thursdays. And it means I will probably have to work longer and later on a Thursday. Um, But it means I won't work any other evening apart from like Wednesdays for my my patrons. But yeah, so it's just, um, it's just otherwise you just, I just don't stop. And uh, you know, no wonder I go to bed and fucking collapse straight away. I'm so yeah. fucking tired. <laughs> exactly. So it's, yes, cutting off work, giving yourself intentional relaxation time. And I do talk in the book on, in the relaxation chapter about active relaxation. Because yeah, oh, some of us can't that. just, some of us can't just sit on the couch and yes. do nothing. So active relaxation is something that is not work related, but still has a process and or a result that you enjoy. Okay, so like so, me going to boot camp or something, for example. Right. Or you know, on the completely opposite end of the spectrum, like one of my hobbies is cake decorating. Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Act- yeah. Because I don't, I, I'm not very, unless I am in a completely different country on a beach with a book and a cocktail, preferably. <laughs> like <laughs> I can't just lay still like I can't mm-hmm. just sit on the sofa it's got this is why I like going to the cinema because I am forced to just sit and concentrate and focus on that one thing in front of me because you can't do anything else like um you can't do anything else uh in the cinema um uh, other than focus on the screen so yeah I love mm-hmm. that Okay, well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. I have to say I was inspired by the story that you read out a couple of weeks ago, which will be like, you know, a month and a half ago when this goes on about the guy who jumped out the window. (laughs) And uh, mine was not quite that much, but I did think back to, I think I've always had a little bit of an inner rebel and I have always been super frustrated with teachers or anybody else who will punish a group of people for the actions of just a few. And so, for example, when we were in school, the teachers 
would make the whole class stay late because two or three people wouldn't show up mm. or, or wouldn't stop talking. So this was in sixth grade and we had this substitute teacher who was an absolute bitch. I still remember her name, but I will not say it, <laughs> but it made that much of an impression on me. And she was just ripping into the class. I don't even remember what for, but I'm pretty sure it was one of those situations where it was like a couple of people just wouldn't shut up. And she was ripping into us for being disrespectful. So I got mad and with my little redheaded temper, I fake yawned, rolled my eyes and drummed my fingers on the desk. How did that go down? (laughs) It didn't go very well. But the thing was, is like, I was the smart kid in class, which means I was definitely not the popular kid in class, but the rest of my classmates stood up for me. They said, no, she just yawned. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love that everybody came to your defense. Yes. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, And I take it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, your courses, anything else that you would like to add. (laughs) All right, so here's the list. Websites, um, psychupacademy.com. Right now I've got that redirecting to my Teachable page. Hopefully I will have a real website at some point. If you're interested in better sleep for the overachiever, you can find it out about that at overachieverbook.com. You can also find it pretty much anywhere on any of the online retailers. And if you're interested in my fiction, that would be ceciliadominic.com, that's C-E-C-I-L-I-A dominic.com and thinking about social media my instagram and facebook are both cecilia dominic author i'm really more active on instagram and i also have a psych up academy uh, account going on instagram and if you are audiobook readers better sleep for the overachiever and my steampunk books are also in audio available wherever you can find those Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Anna Bartolucci and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm going to be joined by the incredible Travis Baldry. Travis is, was, is still a narrator, audiobook narrator, come author, who has an incredible story and journey of success uh, with his debut novel, Legends and Lattes. If you haven't read it, you really need to. It was a book of the week, one of the weeks uh, recently, and he is just a fucking delight to talk to. So I cannot wait to bring you that episode next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.